But on the 15th of, of December, we will begin a Christmas series called The Coming King. You'll see it right behind me. The Coming King. And um, Tara asked me if I thought it would be a good idea to put this hoop and decoration in front of a cross, and I was conflicted at first. But now that I see it, I really love that behind the coming king is the cross. How appropriate. How appropriate. There she is. Perfect. <laughs> um, so that's, uh, that's what we're headed to. We'll spend uh, three weeks and the Christmas Eve service uh, with the coming king. By the way, the Christmas Eve service, it's one of my favorite services here at Emmanuel. This whole place is dark. It happens at 7 o'clock on Christmas Eve, I think 7 o'clock. And it's all lit by candles or maybe these Christmas lights. It's beautiful. What a time of worship. I always walk away from that, now twice, <laughs> feeling just, um, if Ross were here, he would know what I mean, a redounding in my heart, uh, an abundance, uh, an overflow. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that. But today... We are still in Galatians, looking at Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 through 14. Uh, So far, uh, all that we have seen in chapter 6 has been pointing back to chapter 5, verse 25, which reads, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So everything in chapter 6 thus far has been an encouragement to keep in step with the Spirit. He's warned us against, Paul has warned us against conceitful delusions and temptations. He's encouraged us to restore the repentant. He's encouraged us to bear one another's burdens, to share of our resources and finances with one another, and do good to all people, especially those in the church. There's a lot of encouragement and warning in in those verses uh, leading up to all the way up to verse 10. But when we come to verse 11 of chapter 6, the exhortations are over. His main arguments have all been made. He has boiled down all of human existence into two categories, the spirit and the flesh. And so he comes to the conclusion of this letter, this magnificent letter, and he takes up the pen and he writes these final encouragements Really, that culminate in this. We should boast as often as possible. We should be the most boastful people that there are. Uh, We'll come back to that. What I want us to see today is boasting in the flesh is really just fear and pride. Everything, though, everything in life, even this morning and and sitting and the snow that's going to fall and even if you were getting in a car accident on the way home, it's all an opportunity for boasting. Sounds crazy. Let's read our verses. Galatians chapter 6, verse, verses 11. I'm going to read all the way to the end, 18. Here we go. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me, uh, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. 
For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but only a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus Christ. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Let's pray. What glories you set before us this morning, Father, in your word. What a feast you have made for us. Lord, I pray that um, we would be able to taste, to savor, to understand that these words would indeed be sweet on our lips, sweeter than the best honey, more precious than the most refined gold. This is life. This is truth. This is our only boast, so I pray you would speak this morning through my words to keep me from error and to open each one of our hearts to hear your word. I ask you would do it in Christ's name, amen. So like I said, we've just read the conclusions of this letter, conclusion to Galatians, and we know that verse 11 begins our conclusion because Paul begins writing. He says in verse 11, see with what large letter which, with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. So in the Greco-Roman world, boy, I'm tongue twisted this morning. In the Greco-Roman world, it's common practice for somebody like Paul to use uh, an amanusis, which is basically a scribe taking dictation. So Paul did this regularly in his letters. In Romans 16.22, we read, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. So Tertius, apparently, was the scribe, the amanusis, that Paul used for writing to the Romans. So Paul would speak, and somebody else would write it down. But almost always as is tradition in the Greco-Roman world, the one dictating would take the reed at the end of the letter and they would sign it. And maybe they would have a closing statement or a final encouragement. And so here at the end, Paul has taken the reed and this is his signature on the letter. So if you were a reader, a Galatian reader, and you were reading this letter, you'd get to what we see as verse 11 and all of a sudden the handwriting would have changed. It would have gotten a lot bigger, apparently. There's a lot of speculation as to why Paul's handwriting was big, and we don't know. It's speculation. Um, But here is Paul's handwriting. If we ever find the manuscript, we will see Paul's handwriting. How cool would that be? Regardless, the conclusion of this letter in Galatians is strange. It is bizarre. As far as Paul's... um, Tradition goes and the tradition of the world at that time. So Paul writes 12 other letters that we have in the New Testament. Every single one of them concludes in a similar fashion. So Paul might discuss his travel plans. He might ask for prayer. He might list his associates. He might send some greetings or, or, yeah, send some greetings. Uh, But none of that we find at the end of Galatians. It's absent of all of these things. If you remember all the way back into probably March, when we were going through the beginning of this book, the introduction, I told you how strange the introduction was. It begins with great haste. He 
neglects the normal formalities and he just dives right into the urgent matter that's causing him to write. And so he's doing the same thing here at the conclusion. He takes up the pen, dispenses with normalities, and he cuts right to the heart of the life and death situation that the Galatians face. False teachers, ready to make shipwreck of the faith of these Galatian Christians, these new churches. So look where he goes right away in verse 12. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So I understand that the false teachers in Galatia, we understand and the false teachers in in Galatia understand that there's this problem. And they're trying to address this problem. And the problem is that we are sinful. We act in arrogance, we act in fear, we act in selfishness, and our human default is to always think of ourselves first, to look out for number one and defeat our own desires and our own comforts and our own securities. And on top of that, we give absolutely no thought to God at all, naturally. And of course, God calls this sin and disobedience, and for such trespasses, the consequence is condemnation and eternal death. And so throughout all of time, this is humanity's greatest problem, the greatest problem that we all face. And we're going to come back to this later. But this is the problem that the false teachers in Galatia are trying to address. Now these false teachers that Paul's combating, we call them Judaizers today. So Judaizers, they they, They claim faith in Jesus Christ. They believe Jesus is the Messiah, but at the same time, they are trying to live by the law. So they're combining faith and law. They say Jesus is Messiah, but they think that this great problem of sin and, and our need for righteousness is addressed by obedience to the law, by adherence to the law. If we do this, if we follow the law correctly, then we won't be sinful and we will be righteous. And they believe that we can achieve it. So they look like Christians because they claim faith in Jesus, but in reality, they are wolves in sheep's clothing. As verse 12 says, the Judaizers are trying to force or compel the Gentile Christians in Galatia to receive circumcision. So they're claiming that circumcision, following the law of circumcision, is what grants a person favor with God. It grants you entrance into God's promises. It makes you one of his people if you get circumcised. And so by implication, the inverse is true. If you don't get circumcised, you reject God altogether. Paul says that one of the primary reasons for this false teaching is fear. They teach this in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. You see that in verse 12. Now, as we began our series in Galatians, I told you that there's this growing zealot movement throughout the Roman world, especially in Galatia where there's a large Jewish population. Jews were growing in fervor for Jewish purity, for adherence to the law, to the Mosaic law. And if any Jew was found to be abandoning the law in their eyes, they would be persecuted. They would be ostracized. Additionally, these zealots 
began skirmishing against their Gentile oppressors, and eventually they would organize and rise up against the Roman occupation, and this would lead ultimately to the destruction of Jerusalem and the fall of the temple in 70 A.D. But around 48 A.D., as Paul is writing Galatians, this zealot movement is just gathering steam, and it's very likely that the persecution written about in our verse 12 is because the zealots are looking for people abandoning the Jewish faith, hunting them down. They hunted Paul all over the Roman world. They'll hunt his followers too. The zealots saw these people leaving their faith to follow a false Messiah that they crucified. So the Judaizers who see Jesus as Messiah, they're afraid that if they abandon the law for the cross of Christ, they will be persecuted by their more religious brothers, the zealots. So they refuse to believe the gospel that Paul is preaching. They refuse to believe the gospel that Paul is preaching. That is at the center of this letter to the Galatians. Because, listen to this, because of growing popular opinion, they refuse to believe that faith in Jesus is enough. And they compel others to join in their law adherence because they want to be socially acceptable. The Judaizers are afraid of ostracism or worse from an increasingly passionate sector of society and and they are leading whole churches to the very brink of hell or they are attempting to do so. You You probably hear it by now. Doesn't that sound like the church today? People compromising the gospel of Christ because it's no longer popular, because it's no longer socially acceptable, and they are leading countless others to make shipwreck of their faith that is the church today. For the Judaizers and the Zealots and their followers, the law has become a whip in the hand of their slave master, which is fear. But today the whip is not the Mosaic law. Today the whip is tolerance and the fear of discrimination. Tolerance is a good thing. God created it to be a good thing, just like he created the law to be a good thing. But in the hands of humanity, it's being made into a whip, and it's being flung ferociously with fear and without thinking. But no matter the the whip we we cannot let fear drive us away from the truth of the gospel. The world will rage against God's truth, and that should not surprise us. This is what Jesus said would happen. In John 15, 20, he said, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And Jesus gave great encouragement for when the world does turn against us and will turn against us. In Matthew 5, 11 through 12, he said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. When people are persecuting you, that's an opportunity to rejoice and be glad. Upside down. 
Brothers and sisters, we must expect that the world would turn against us. It was turning against the Christians in Galatia. It's going to turn against us. And when it does, we must not let society whip us into its demands. We do not let the fear of man drive us away from the cross of Christ. We hold fast to Christ crucified, for our reward is great in heaven. Look at verse 13. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. In verse 13, the slave master has changed. Now the whip of the law is being held by the slave master of pride. The circumcised, both zealots and Judaizers, cannot meet the standard of the law. They cannot meet the standard that they set for themselves. And as we've been going through Galatians, we've seen this over and over and over again. Whether it's the Mosaic law or the societal laws or laws you set for yourself, nobody can meet those standards. Nobody can even live up to the things that they want other people to live up to. Everybody is a lawbreaker. Nobody can meet the standards of our law especially when it comes to the 613 commandments we find in the Mosaic Law. And we learn that to break one law is to be guilty of breaking every law. James 2.10, For whoever keeps the law but fails on one point has become accountable for all of it. But pride claims that the law is kept. It gives the appearance of righteousness and it refuses to admit the wickedness hiding, residing within the heart. Pride refuses to believe what James 2.10 says. And this is the exact indictment that Jesus levied against the Pharisees in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tomb, which, tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The Pharisee in Jesus' day are the Judaizers in Paul's day, appearing righteous, appearing like they've got it all together. And inside they are hypocrites. They are lawless. They're doomed. But these blind hypocrites, they're also going around attempting to lead Gentile Christians into their own arrogant delusions. They want to boast in the flesh of the Galatians. What a statement that is. They want to boast in the flesh of the Galatians. So you know how ancient warriors would rove around and take the heads of their enemies and display them as trophies. Richard B. Hayes says the situation of Galatia is much like that. He writes, The Judaizers want to display the foreskins of the Galatians as trophies of their own triumphant persuasive powers. That's a visceral statement. False teachers are seeking validation through the circumcision of the Galatians. Validation from society, the society that they value. And with their bloodied ceremonial knives in hand, they would boast in their hypocritical, arrogant delusions, 
proudly proclaiming salvation when, as Jesus said in Matthew 23, 14, they shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. All for their boast in the flesh. Anyone that believes they're a pretty good person and is unwilling to acknowledge that they are a lawbreaker is just as deluded as these false teachers, as the Pharisees, as the Judaizers. It's hypocrisy. They boast in their flesh. They boast in their own goodness. They've bought the lie, and their pride shuts the doors to the kingdom of heaven. You know, more often than not, as we see in our society as fear and the, the fear of man and the want of validation dictate, the deluded seek to spread their delusions so that their collective boast would drown out all disagreement. The more voices that join them, the more correct they are. Acceptance is correctness, right? Isn't that what we see around us every day? That's the boast of the flesh, driven by fear, by pride, by delusion. But, thanks be to God that there is another boast. Indeed, what he has written in his conclusion, so unique among all of his epistles, is an indictment on the false teachers, a condemnation on the false teachers. It should land heavy and, and stunningly dark. It is. He's calling them out. And in verse 14, we come to a turn in the road. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And I think probably all of us who read those words miss something so crucial. The cross of Christ. No living person in 48 AD would have boasted in a crucifixion. It is the most shameful, horrific death that the Roman Empire concocted. It's like boasting in the electric chair. It's like boasting in the gallows or lethal injection. But far worse, far more painful, far more shameful. An enemy of Rome was stripped naked and spat upon and tortured and made to die over many hours, if not days. Their agony on public display their bodily functions unhidden, their crimes proclaimed for all to see. So if you were to bring up crucifixion at a Galatian dinner table, it would have turned the stomachs of everybody there. And Paul says this is what he's boasting in. This is his boast, this cross of Christ. Why? Because Jesus fulfilled the terms of the law. He met all the demands, all 613 demands of the law. And on that cross, he meets the final demands, the demands of sacrifice, the demand that somebody would die for sin. He met 
every demand, and it finds its culmination on the cross. He died on the cross for the unrighteous, took the wrath of God, which we deserved, upon himself, that we might be saved. On the cross, Romans 5, 6 through 8, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And it all happens on a cross. All human history hangs on those nails. And Jesus is righteous. All we must do is believe it. And trust in Jesus' righteous work, in his perfect sacrifice that he offers to cover us with his righteousness, to forgive us for our sins, removing our wickedness, to justify us. It's as if you are crucified with Christ. It's as if you no longer live, but Christ who lives within you. And then, after death on the cross, Jesus permanently secures our eternal life the moment he raises from the grave. Death defeated. Death has died. Listen to Paul's boast. This is a boast in the cross of Christ. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In that bloody place of shame hung the greatest boast of humanity, victory. Victory over sin, victory over fear, victory over pride, victory over death. Victory on the cross of Christ, a criminal's cross. And now, when we look at the world, the world is dead to us because of the cross. It has nothing to offer any longer as Josiah prayed for in his prayer. The world has nothing any longer to offer for us. No reason to boast. No satisfaction that we can find there. It's all passing away. It's all filled with pride and fear. The world is an abhorrence to us now. It is a, it is a corpse itself to us. Dead. And to the world, we are the corpse. We smell like death. 2 Corinthians 2, 15-16 For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance of death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. In the nostrils of the world, we smell like death. Like a corpse. It's the fragrance of the world, or it's the fragrance of Christ. The world killed. It's the smell of their own impending judgment. And the cross of Christ reminds them of that. If they hated Jesus, how much more will they hate us?
But when we come to the cross, and when we see his broken body and his flowing blood, we also see death. Our death. The death we deserved. But more than that, we see our hope. We see our forgiveness. We see our righteousness. We see our Savior. Christ becomes our only boast. Paul says he doesn't want to boast in anything else except the cross of Christ. May there be nothing else that he boasts in except this cross. What does he mean? How can everything end up in boasting in Christ? Every good thing and every bad thing. The raise I got at work, the loss of a loved one, a morning without a headache, all of that. Boast in Christ. Because you deserved wrath. Your sins purchased for you an eternal weight of shame, of torment. Anything that is not a part of that shame and that torment is because of the cross. But still there are plenty of bad things that happen on this earth that feel shameful, that feel like torment, they're painful, they're suffering. How can they be boasted in? Romans 8:28 For we know that those who love God for those who love God all things work together for good I know that this is a has become a pat verse and somebody suffering somebody else throws this verse at him and it's just like thanks But that doesn't Change the fact that God gave us this promise and it reveals an incredible reality for every one of us. For we know, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. God sees every bad thing that happens to you, whether it be great or small. He sees every bad thing. He counts them all up. He remembers every single one of them and he's working everyone out for your good. All of them. He is doing this because he bought you on the cross with the blood of his son. And he will not let that blood go to waste. You are his sons and his daughters. And everything is for your good. Everything is for your good. Paul, just after talking about how he feels like his own body is wasting away, writes this. 2 Corinthians four seventeen through 18 For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So if you do lose a loved one, and if your body is wasting away, and if you are reviled for the sake of Jesus, then rejoice. For God is working it all out for your good. You, his beloved child, your reward is great in heaven. And all of that good comes to you because of a blood-soaked cross. That eternal weight of glory is coming as surely as the sun rises.
So if you receive that bonus, and if you have family that loves each other, and even if your car passed inspection with flying colors, rejoice in the cross of Christ. All these good things come to you now because of the Blackest Friday. Apart from the cross, your reward for sin was death, but now you receive grace. And these good things are graces being given to you now, purchased on the cross. Boast in the cross of Christ. His life purchased every blessing, past, present, and future. Every blessing that you experience is because of the cross. Every blessing and every pain that will one day be turned to a blessing should cause each one of us to bow our heads and praise God for his untold mercies flowing to us on the blood of his Son. What would it look like if every day you boasted in the cross of Christ at work, at home, at school, Now, I'm not talking about being obnoxious about Jesus. There is a boasting that's obnoxious. That's not what this is. You need to praise God for the blood of his son. Everything. Wouldn't it be a life that's filled with gratitude? Where your joy is unshakable? Where you're undeniably boastful? Not a boast that originates in yourself, in what you've accomplished, in your achievements, in your ability to be righteous, but it's a boast that originates in the cross of Christ who has done and given everything for you. Would you not be effervescent with the promise of life in Christ and with the warning of coming judgment? That is you when your boast is in the cross of Christ. You are a living display of the hope of the promise of Christ. And you are a living display of the coming judgment for sin. Brothers and sisters, don't look to what you can achieve. And I say this to myself, me. Don't look to what we can achieve. Look to no law to find God's favor. Do not fear the disapproving gaze of the world upon you. Rather, look to the electric chair. Look to the gallows. Look to the cross of Jesus Christ our Lord. And there, only there, will you find anything worth boasting in. In just a moment... We're going to partake in communion in this juice and bread, this broken body and blood of our Savior that it represents. I think as we do, it's dark on one hand, and on the other hand, it's a great boast. Let us remember that boast. You know, the, the men, they're going to come, they're going to pass around the elements, and so just a word about that. If you do not boast in Jesus Christ, if you find your boast elsewhere, then please, I ask, do not partake in communion. But think 
about the things that have been talked about. And as it's passed around, if you do boast, if your boast is found in Christ, then I ask you to wait and we'll all partake together. But before we break for communion, one more note about verse 14. In my ESV version, it reads like this. But far be it from me to boast in anything, to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. But I think the NIV translates this better. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see that that's a prayer? That's a prayer of Paul. He's not saying he's perfect at this. He's crying out to God, may I never boast in anything else except the cross of Christ. The whole world is trying to drag us somewhere else to boast in other things, and so is our flesh. But he is praying, God, let me not boast in anything else. It's a prayer. It's a hope. Let nothing else stir my praises except the cross of Christ. May there be nothing. So I pray that we would join Paul in his prayer, desiring, hoping, longing to boast in nothing else except the cross of Christ. Let's do that now. God, you see each one of our hearts and you see where we place our boasts. And I think we probably would all say that we fall short of what we want to to be. I do. God, work in us a greater passion for you, a greater understanding of what happened on that cross that our desires might be rightly aligned, that we might boast in nothing except the cross of Christ. This world holds nothing for us. It's all passing away. It's fading. The things that are unseen are eternal. Fix our eyes there. Fix our eyes on the cross to which all of these eternal unseen things are coming to us. Help us, O God. And by our boasting... In the cross of Christ. May the world know who we stand for. And may the precious blood of your Son spill out onto so many others because of our boast in the cross of Christ, in the redemption, the forgiveness, the justification that you purchased for each one of us. Not because of anything that we are or have done, but because of you and your love. We love you, Father, because you first love us. In all of these things, we praise you, we boast in Jesus Christ, in the cross he was crucified on. Amen.